Um, Tonight's reading is from Genesis, uh, chapter 21. It's actually different than in the program. Um, Chapter 21, verses 8 through 21. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was we sorry, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking, and she said to Abraham, "Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac." The matter distressed Abraham greatly, because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed um, about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation, also because he is your offspring. Early the next morning... Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby, about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying, and he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. When he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. The Bible spins against the way it drives. There's a story that it wants to tell, but it keeps interrupting itself, uh, blurting out sort of irreverences, like the Bible has Tourette's or something, some tick that it can't control. It keeps undermining its own plot, like some joker or prophet or joker prophet followed around the official storytellers banging drums, to distract the main guys, yelling out obfuscations. Or maybe there was some subversive scribe that just quietly planted these seeds. Or maybe it was some insurgent woman who snuck in at night, replacing pages in the manuscript with her own texts to undermine the patriarchy. Anyway, it's brilliant. I love the scripture that we get to have. If there's some chance, and I know this is very unlikely, but we're free to imagine that there was a woman behind some of these little anarchies, this might be the story, the story of Hagar. I mean, why is she in this book at all? There are two long, detailed passages given over to her, 
even though these narratives undermine what the rest of the story is trying to say. This is the Hebrew scripture, after all. It's about Israel. It's about how this particular nation came to be and where it goes. It's about Abraham's heirs through Isaac. It's about God's blessing of the Jews. Hagar's story thrusts out in an entirely different direction. It's about Abraham's other son. It's about the other woman. Hagar's name means other, outsider. Who let her in? The way I heard it told in Sunday school, Abraham's relationship with Hagar was a mistake. Hagar had a sultry, sinister vibe, and Isaac, Abe's son through Sarah, was sweet and compliant, but Ishmael, Hagar's son, was gruff and wary, sort of a bully with something suspect up his sleeve. I can't remember exactly how this was conveyed, but I've seen recent curriculum that's pretty pointed about it. Ishmael was mean to his little brother. Thus, Ishmael deserved God's punishment to be banished to the desert and die. So, don't be mean to your little brother. (laughs) This is kind of a big problem when it comes to translating Bible stories to children's stories. Trying somehow to find a simple moral lesson when there isn't one. And besides, this way of telling it misses what is most glaringly beautiful about this story. For a female protagonist in the Bible, Hagar's story is remarkable. For as little a role as it seems like she should have, she's tremendous. So the story. Amy read the second segment, but the first segment is sort of the same. Um, The story is that Sarah, Abraham's wife, can't get pregnant. But she knows there needs to be an heir, so she tells Abraham to have sex with her Egyptian maid. And Hagar does get pregnant. Sarah, theoretically, should be happy about that. But she's not. Most translations say that once Hagar got pregnant, she looked at Sarah with contempt. But the Hebrew is actually much softer than that. Something along the lines of Hagar looked at Sarah with less esteem. Maybe this was because Sarah forced her to have sex with her 85-year-old husband. Maybe it was because Sarah was asking her to have a child that she'd have to give away. It seems like there could have been a lot of reasons for Hagar to look at Sarah with less esteem. But whatever the case, Sarah tells Abraham that she doesn't like the way Hagar looked at her. Seriously. She tells Abraham, I don't like the way that woman looked at me. Sarah's menopausal prone, I'm guessing, to irritable misinterpretation. Who knows what Hagar was thinking when she looked at Sarah? But Abraham says, okay, go ahead and do what you want with her. And so Sarah deals harshly with her. Maybe she yelled at her, maybe she beat her. It must have been something pretty bad because it makes Hagar flee the camp, out into the wilderness alone. Something incredibly brave and a little bit risky. But an angel of the Lord finds her and says, You should go back, because, Behold, you shall bear a son, 
and call his name Ishmael. This won't be the last time that you hear this line in the Bible, but it is the first. Hagar, man, this is the first annunciation. Behold, you shall bear a son and call his name. An angel will say these same words to Mary. And then God gives Hagar, this woman, the same promise God gave Abraham, the patriarch, the man. God says, I will greatly multiply your descendants that they can't be numbered for the multitude. And then Hagar gives this God who had promised to make of her a great nation a name. She's the first person in the Bible to call God by name. She names God. A name that she seems to make up on the spot. The sort of thrilling audacity of that. She names God the God who sees. What a great name. So Hagar goes back and has her son in camp, which was probably a pretty good move for the survival of both of them. Eventually, Sarah miraculously gets pregnant and has her son Isaac, the true heir. And then at the celebration, the festival of Isaac's weaning, I think we should have more festivals, like when our children quit nursing, have a festival of weaning. But so there's this big party. You know, maybe Sarah's drinking because, you know, she couldn't drink a long time before that. And maybe she's a mean drunk, I don't know. She sees Ishmael playing with Isaac at this party. The text we read said mocking, but it's a word that can be translated many ways. Playing and laughing are also good interpretations. But Sarah gets really upset and decides that Hagar and Ishmael should be sent to the wilderness to die. There's a lot of midrash on this text. The rabbis ask a lot of questions about it. It invites a lot of questions. Sarah wants to send a little boy and his mother to the wilderness to die. A lot of the rabbis defend Sarah here. They say, well, Sarah was just a very incisive judge of humanity. She knew that the two sons of Abraham could never live peacefully together. She had this sort of clinical decisiveness. Whereas Abraham tended to be so clouded by his sense of the multifacetedness of everything, so attentive to everyone's varying needs, emotionally entangled. Abraham, the father of faith, is so open to counter-possibilities that one thing, one path, one way of seeing is impossible for him. But Sarah has a laser-beam vision that distangles complexity and cuts to the quick. You know the type? She says the slave woman's son will not share in the inheritance with my son. Abe, though, being the sort of guy he is, is troubled deeply by Sarah's pronouncement. But God tells him to go ahead and do what his wife says. Some rabbis rush in to say, see, the voice of God and the voice of Sarah are one. I doubt it. So then there's that wrenching scene where Hagar is sent away into the desert. Abraham puts her boy on her back and gives her a little water and a little bread. And when the water's gone, Hagar puts her dying boy under a bush. 
And she sits down and cries, please don't make me watch my son die. Can you imagine? I can. And she weeps, and the child weeps. This is actually the first weeping that happens in the Bible. And the God who sees responds to this weeping beautifully. Says, Hagar, don't be afraid. Lift up the lad and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make of him a great nation. This is definitely a story that spins against the way it drives. The voice of Sarah and the voice of God are clearly not one. I'm not even sure if God has one very easily discernible voice. At any rate, God is not yielding to the official, canonical, patriarchal Hebrew plot here. It's like the story knows what it wants to tell. Isaac is the chosen one. The Israelites are the chosen people. But then there's this intense other narrative dropped in the middle of that. Hagar and Ishmael survive in the wilderness, but not only survive, they thrive. There's a small line at the end of the story. You might not have even noticed it, but it's startling and it's fantastic. It says, Hagar finds a wife for her son. This is the only time in the entire Bible where a woman finds a wife for her son. Men find wives for boys. It's a patriarchy. You don't let women mess with the lines. Hagar messes with the lines, seriously. Hagar's story parallels Abraham's to a stunning degree. She takes the first son into the wilderness where his death seems imminent until an angel appears and shows her a well. Abraham takes the second son up to Mount Moriah where his death seems imminent until an angel speaks and shows him a ram. The language and the stories of these two incidents is parallel, sometimes using the exact same words. Abraham is the central character in the Isaac story, and Hagar is the central character in the Ishmael story. Almost like here is a matriarch on par with the patriarch. I want that narrative to spin on. I love it. How could it not? And you know what? It really does. But what is so heartbreaking, so surprising really, is you know what great creative possibility. But it turns out to be so fraught. The story of Ishmael and Hagar creates a tension in the narrative, but as it spins on, it's not just some cool literary tension. The children of Abraham's two sons become enemies. Like violent, bombing, oppressive, tanks driving over little boys' enemies. From Isaac, the Jews. From Ishmael, Islam. So the story goes. There aren't any more stories in the Hebrew narrative about Hagar and Ishmael. But there are a lot of stories in the Islamic tradition. We don't pay that much attention to Hagar. In Islam, she is the matriarch of monotheism. It's through Ishmael that Muhammad comes. God led Hagar into the wilderness so that through her, a faith might be born. 
And the story of Hagar in the Islamic traditions is similar to the story in the Hebrew scripture. She's sent, she sent to the wilderness with Ishmael, and she runs out of water. And in this total panic, she runs back and forth between these two hills seven times, desperately looking for water. After her seventh time of running back and forth between the hills, Ishmael kicks the ground, and this well miraculously comes out of the ground. And it's called the Zamzam well. So when Muslims make their pilgrimage to Mecca, they visit the Zamzam well. And as part of their pilgrimage to reenact Hagar's grief by running seven times between the hills, and they drink from the Zamzam well, and they take some of the water from there back home in memory of Hagar. The Kaaba is the holiest shrine in Islam at Mecca. According to Islam, it was first built by Adam and then rebuilt later by Abraham and Ishmael when Abraham comes to visit his son. In the Hebrew scripture, Abraham seems to abandon Ishmael. In the Islamic stories, he keeps coming back to visit Ishmael. There's something heartbreaking and beautiful about these stories. One son in one place, one in the other. Abraham trudging back and forth across the desert to visit his sons the father of not one faith, but two. Abraham loves both of his sons. The tension created by these different narratives obviously hasn't always been creative. It's been devastatingly destructive. But couldn't it be? I think there's something wrong with the way we read, something that has devastating consequences. We can't stand alone on the word of God. It should knock us off our feet. Some readers say, see, Hera, Sarah was so smart. She saw that Ishmael was a wild man whose progeny would oppress the chosen people forever. Clearly, a Muslim reading could say the reverse. There's always many ways to read. And trying to simplify the story for the children Ignore the destabilizing narratives seems not only less interesting, but dangerous. We need to listen for that joker's drum. We need to hear the tune that undermines. And not because it's clever to read this way, but because the life of the world depends on it. If scripture hardens our hearts against anyone, I'm certain that we're reading it wrong. Think of this odd little beautifully undermining of the grand narrative detail. When Joseph, an important figure in the official Hebrew canon, is abandoned in the wilderness by his family, dying of thirst in a pit, a passing caravan of Ishmaelites save him. A caravan of Ishmaelites save a Hebrew patriarch. This doesn't really fit into the narrative in the terms of historical detail because there's no way that by this time the descendants of Ishmael could really appear so soon since Ishmael wasn't much older than Joseph's grandpa. So I think it's just one of those lovely, subversive little plants. The Hebrew patriarch is saved by the outcast. After the story of Hagar, Sarah disappears from the narrative until her death. She isn't mentioned in the story of the near sacrifice of Isaac, her beloved son, 
So Midrash says that she dies because she couldn't face that story where her husband nearly sacrifices her only son. Aviva Zornberg says that it's Sarah's laser beam vision that distangles complexity that kills her, that makes her life unlivable when structure and certainty are undermined. Abraham comes across so differently than Sarah in the narrative of Hagar. He gets up early to see her off, gives her food and water. His tendrils of concern don't allow him to just cut off the other. He's greatly distressed when Sarah sends the woman and his son away. Sarah, says Aviva, dies of the way she lived. She can't meet the challenges of later life, which demands reversals, the confrontation with counter-possibilities. What's true in the morning and the evening is a lie. Sarah can't live in that tension. She can't allow the counter-narrative. She doesn't listen for it. She sends it to the wilderness to die. There are religions. There are nations. There are people. There's a way of living that is like that. And it leads to death. Abraham's different. He's so entangled in the complex world. A lack of certainty is in his way of being. Clarity isn't really his thing. It's something more like love. He feels incapable of the surgical removal of Hagar and Ishmael. God tells him to go ahead and do it, so he does. But if there are more stories to tell, and there are always more stories to tell, I like the ones where he trudges back and forth across the desert, visiting both of his sons. I think it would be like him to do so. Near the end of Abraham's life, after Sarah has died, Abraham takes a second wife, Keturah. According to the Midrashic tradition, Keturah is actually Hagar's real name. Hagar was just sort of a descriptive name, meaning other. But Keturah was her real name. So, so far from cutting off the counter-narrative, Abraham embraces it takes it into his heart, lays in bed with it, makes love with Hagar again, and they have many more children. In this reading, the world is not hopelessly divided. There isn't one side or the other. Hagar and Abraham embrace in their old age. May this somehow be true.